0: As I said, we're taking a break in our uh, sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus this morning and talk a little bit about the significance of baptism for the Christian life. Um, And part of the reason we're doing this is because we have a baptism scheduled next week, and I won't be preaching, so I'm going to preach about baptism this week. Um, That's part of the reason. But the other reason is it always does good for us to pause. Um, And to consider the promises of God To stop and reflect upon them So we'll be looking at a short passage this morning Gospel of Luke Chapter 3 verses 21 through 22 Um, This is before the ministry of Jesus really started So if you read through the Gospel of Luke You hear about how Jesus was born We get a short story about him As a boy in Jerusalem They can't find him, they find him at the temple And he's basically there in Sunday school, not Sunday school, they didn't have Sunday school at the time, but he's there with all the priests and the experts of the law, and he's amazing them by his answers as a, you know 11 or 12 year old boy. And then we see Jesus pop up here, the beginning of his ministry, before he's really done anything of note for us to notice, and he's baptized. So we'll read this and we'll talk a little bit more about it. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. God's word, good, beautiful, and true. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. A number of years ago I met a couple who worked with a a group called the International Justice Mission. And the particular mission that they worked on, I think I've told this story before, was in Guyana. And they worked in a mission that was dedicated to rescuing children who had either been sold into slavery or born into slavery there in kind of the fishing industry in Guyana. The kids would be sold into slavery and they were the people who worked on the boats or they were passed around and sold and used. Um, and my friends worked with the International Justice Mission there, and what they would do is rescue the kids, bring them into basically a group home, an orphanage. They'd educate them, they'd give them food to eat, a place to stay, they'd love them and take care of them. And they, what was interesting to me is when they told the story, they were talking about what it was like for the kids after they had been rescued. After the kids had been rescued from their slavery and they're brought into the safety of this new home where they're cared for, what it was like for them. And they said it took a very long time for these kids to get, not just in their brain, but in their heart and in their bones, that they were safe. That it took them a long time to get used to that idea. And they had to be told over and over again and shown over and over again, you're not going to be hit again. You're not going to be sold again. You don't have to afford food because there's going to be enough food tomorrow. You're not going to be in slavery again. It took a long, long time for that to hit home. And they said one of the most powerful things for the kids and helping them build this muscle memory of freedom was being told over and over again and reminded over and over again of the story of their rescue story of their rescue. When this international justice mission mission to set kids free became part of their story. When they got wrapped up into that story of rescue. Now remember, when they told me that, it hit me as a particularly powerful image of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. You know, we have this gospel story that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that God has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. And it almost seems too good to be true, right? That we can actually be forgiven of sins. That we can be transformed into people of hope in a hopeless world. That we can live life day in, day out as dearly beloved sons and daughters of God. And that can be our worthiness. That sounds a little too good to be true. And a lot of times we live uh, our lives as if other stories are true. Lesser stories or lies. We live out of senses of worthiness that aren't founded in us being children of God, but are founded in ideas that we, are, uh, that we earn our status. That we earn status before God and before other people because of our works. A lot of times we live out of lesser stories. Like we aren't empowered by the God who brings life to dead places.
1: And so we too
0: need to keep coming back to this gospel story. It's one of the reasons we talk about it every single Sunday in our worship service. Because we need to be reminded that this is true. This gospel story is reality. This is the truth that drives out the lies. We need to keep coming back to this story. To hear it told to ourselves. To tell it to one another. To inhabit it. To live it out. And where does that story begin? When does that story of rescue start to become our own story? Where the touch point of the story of God's redemption becomes ours? It's in our baptism. Baptism is how this story starts. In a sense, it's the physical action that signifies to us what Jesus does for us in our rescue and our welcome. Baptism is kind of that (laughs) formal joining... Almost like a marriage where we can come back to time and time again and remember who we are. So what I want to do this morning is look at this baptism of Jesus, talk about what it means for us and what it can mean for us to lean upon to put our baptisms to use. So first, let's look at the baptism of Jesus. We see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was baptized by a guy named John the Baptist. That's a good person to do baptisms, right? Um, He was baptized by a man named John. John had been sent with this particular mission. He was coming to the people and he was saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is getting ready to do, to fulfill the things that he's promised to do. So get ready. Turn away from the things of this world, from sin, from the lesser kingdoms that call after your allegiance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of the things he did in the midst of this preaching is he, with water, would symbolically wash the people that were coming to him. That's what baptism was. It was a symbolic washing, a cleansing, a being made new in preparation of this new kingdom that was coming. So it might be odd for us, if we know who Jesus is, that he himself would be baptized, right? He didn't have any sin to be cleansed from. He wasn't necessarily uh, you know, trapped in a foreign allegiance to a false kingdom that he needed to turn to the king. He was the king actually coming. So we might wonder why Jesus was baptized. Well, notice in verse 21, that very first verse, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. One of the reasons Jesus was baptized is so that he would identify with the people there in their preparation for the kingdom of God. His baptism was one of him uh, condescending to be identified With the people. Not just the people being baptized there, but also with all of us who undergo the experience of baptism ourselves. If we fast forward to Ephesians 4, notice we had that in our call to worship. It speaks not of many individual baptisms, of one baptism. It says there is one baptism to which we're all joined. And what Paul doesn't say explicitly there, but that one baptism that we're all joined to... The baptism of Jesus here in Luke 3. When we are washed with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are united to this experience that Jesus had here in Luke chapter 3. The baptism of Jesus. And reflect on that. In being baptized Himself, Jesus, in a sense, infused our baptisms with greater significance. Because if you really think about it, Christians around the world who experience baptism, there's so many variances. Some people are baptized as infants and children before they've even had the opportunity uh, to, you know, from our perspective, to hear and understand and respond. Some people are baptized uh, when they're elderly, after a long life lived. Some people are baptized in a beautiful, beautiful cathedral. Some people are baptized in a river. Some people... Declan, next week, will be baptized right here in this room that we rent out for worship. There's so many variances between our individual baptisms. But the fact that Jesus here was baptized when the people came to be baptized. And that we're united to His one baptism. It infuses our individual baptisms with significance. It joins them together to be more than just splashing some water on somebody. And, you know, looking at a cute kid or whatever it might be. And being baptized in himself, Jesus infused our baptisms with significance. And it means that our baptisms, wherever and however they take place, are suddenly incorporated into his. And that we're joined to Jesus by grace. And that all that is his, by right, becomes ours by grace. And that's the point. He condescends to us to lift us up to him. He had no sin to repent of, right? That also means he had no sin to experience the punishment of. But we know that he was punished for our sin. Isaiah talks about it. He was broken for our sin. He stood in our place. He identified with us. And not just so he would have solidarity with us. Like, oh yeah, I know it's tough. He identified with us so that we might be lifted up to be identified with Him. And so, as Jesus is baptized in this water, in the Jordan River here, this filthy dirty water in the River Jordan, it is infused with a grace that can wash us all. And so, that all like I said, all that is His by right becomes ours by gift. His victory over sin becomes our victory over sin. We can claim it as our own. His resurrection unto new life Becomes our resurrection in the promise and hope that our bodies are not abandoned but they'll be raised in glory. His righteousness earned in Him not sinning, in Him following the will of the Father, becomes our righteousness credited to us by a gift so that we stand before God as righteous in His sight, not wondering if sin's going to pop up and there's wrath waiting for us. No, we stand in the righteousness of Christ. All that is His by right becomes ours. Grace, And so in baptism, look here at verse 21. It says that heavens were opened up to Jesus. Those are heavens that are now opened up to us that we might be reconciled to the Father. And that the Holy Spirit who descended on him in verse 22 in the form of a dove is given to us. The Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence that awakens us to the new life God has for us. In baptism, the work of Jesus identifying with us begins. He identifies with us so that we might identify with Him. Now the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament, he understands this connection. He makes it over and over again in his letters. If you've ever read some of the Apostle Paul's letters, one of the most common phrases you're going to see is in Christ, in Jesus. He talks about it over and over again, that we are in Christ. This is what he's talking about, that we're joined to Him, that we're united to Him. Or when he speaks in Romans chapter 6 about our baptism joining us to the death and resurrection of Jesus... What he's making, the point he's making there, is this physical action of somebody putting water on you in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, through the work of God, becomes this incredible action that sweeps us up into the life of God's redemption. It sweeps us up into this story of Jesus. And so Jesus is baptized as an identification with us so that we might identify with him and find our identity in him. And what's that identity? What's that? Identity. It's right here for us. Look at verse twenty-two. A voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Our individual baptisms aren't just personal expressions of faith. They really are initiation into the one baptism that started with Jesus. And in our baptisms, we are invited to own the story and hear these words that were pronounced upon Jesus echo out. 2,000 years later, echo into our lives that we might know that we are sons and daughters of God that God loves and with whom He is well pleased. The Father delights in us. He delights in us. And if we ever doubt it, we can point back to our baptism, which points back to the baptism of Jesus. That voice from heaven This is my Son, my love, with whom I'm well pleased, echoes and reverberates out to us today. Which leads me to my second point. We belong to God. We belong to God. Now, a lot of people speak of baptism as kind of like a holy self-expression. The idea is this. Baptism is us demonstrating our commitment to Jesus. Like we've, we've studiously analyzed all the claims about who Jesus is, and we understand really what we're getting into, And we say, okay, I choose to believe, and now I'm going to be baptized as an expression of my commitment. But I think to speak of baptism as primarily that, as primarily a self-expression, is to kind of confuse things a bit. Why? Because baptism is not a sign that points back to me. It's not a sign that points back to me and my good intentions. Baptism, guys, I don't need a sign to point me back to me. I really don't. Baptism is not a mirror. Baptism is a window. Baptism is a window or a lens through which we can see that we are pointed back to Jesus. No, baptism doesn't point us back to us. It points us to God. It points us to God who promises. To God who washes clean. It points to God who gives His grace. God is the primary person at work. Not me. Think about it. In baptism, we're mostly passive. We're there. But the waters apply to us. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is pronounced upon us. It's the promises of God that are in the marquee letters shining forth. We're there just reveling in the grace. That's why theologians throughout the centuries have spoken of baptism as a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace a sign that points to Him and a seal that confirms that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We belong to God, a God that shows us in Jesus that He does not condemn us, but He washes us clean. He's a God that doesn't leave us in the death of our world, but He renews us. He's a God who judges our sin justly by removing it from us and placing it upon Jesus. And in turn, He gives us His new life. New life that begins at the resurrection of Jesus, but does not end there. We are not our own, but we belong to God who brings life to dead places. And that's the sign of where baptism points us. The arrow that points out from the water to this God. We belong to God. And if we belong to God, friends, that means that God belongs to us. If we belong to God, that means God belongs to us. Not as a possession, not as a genie in a bottle that we rub and it pops out when we pray and we get three wishes. But imagine this. God, the transcendent and holy God is for us. This God is our God. And we are His people. You know, it speaks about Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Imagine that. God does not wish to be God without us. God's existence through Jesus is defined by He is our God. We can call upon Him and He hears us. We are His people. Our baptisms become a seal, like like on a contract, a seal of this glorious truth, a seal that we can look back to by faith that confirms our share in this inheritance, even when we don't feel it emotionally. So friends, we're not beholden to our sin. We're not children destined for judgment against us. We do not belong to the worst parts of our history, whether that's something that we've done or somebody's done against us. We belong to God, the God who cleanses us. And if God cleanses us, we will be cleansed. If God begins the work, it will be brought to completion. So we don't have to walk in hopelessness and wondering if when my good intentions run out, will this progress toward God run out. No, it won't. We belong to God belongs to us. His, his love is stronger than our selfishness. His love is older than our sin. It was set on us before we sinned. And there are none that can snatch us from His hand. There is nothing in all this world that can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. And in that sense, our baptisms become like a uh, reverse Chernobyl. You guys know what Chernobyl was? Happened I think in the late 80s. HBO did a great actually, mini miniseries on it a couple years ago. Chernobyl was this uh, nuclear plant in Ukraine that suddenly had a malfunction and it became this, uh, there was an explosion and it became this area of fallout. The interesting thing about Chernobyl is that the worst effects of it weren't actually the moment that the explosion happened. I think there were 56 people that died related to the explosion and that's tragic enough. But what happened in Chernobyl was suddenly this became a place that radiated poison. It poisoned the water supply. Poison the, 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 the natural world, poison the the food supply. And in the aftermath of Ukraine, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people who died in some way in relation to that. Our baptisms are like a reverse journey. It's the point of explosion, <laughs> in a sense. And the grace that radiates out of that, not simply because it's a it's water, it's all connected to Jesus, obviously. But our baptisms become a reverse Chernobyl, a thing we can keep looking back to. The grace radiates out from that point. And the biggest effects of it might not happen the moment that the baptism happens, like Chernobyl. That's just the the entry point. That's the explosion as it goes out. But the grace of God radiates out to every part of our lives, becomes the defining feature, and suddenly we find that God's grace is not just in one section of our life. It's touched every point. It's touched every point. God has renewed us in all of who we are. And we'll only see the completion of that in the new heavens and new earth, of course. But baptism is the promise God has started a work that incorporates all of who we are, and that all things will be made new. Baptism is a one-time event that happens at a moment in time that takes a lifetime to complete. It's one of one of the things, uh, one of the Christian traditions with funerals. Um, I've been to a few that emphasize this. That a funeral is the completion of a journey that began with baptism. In a baptism, you're symbolically baptized into the death of Christ. And when we die, we're returned to the ground. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and all of that. It's the completion of this journey. And now that all that awaits is the new life that springs forth. Baptism is a one-time event that takes a lifetime to finish, a defining action that spills out of all of who we are. And as an aside, let me say this. It doesn't matter if you were baptized by being completely immersed in water. I had that experience. Or if you had water sprinkled on you or poured on you. That's not the point. It's not the point. It's not the amount of water that decides if a baptism is great or not. Um, Scripture doesn't tie the power of baptism to the amount of water that's used. What matters is that we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, baptized into the possession of God. We are not our own. We belong to God. Which leads me to my third and final point. Using our baptism. Our baptisms are meant to be put to use. We're meant to put them to work. They're not meant to be something that we get and we put up on a shelf that we look at every once in a while. Oh yeah, I was baptized. No, it's something that's meant to be put to work in our lives. And here's what I mean. If there's signs, it's meant to be looked to. If it's a seal, it's meant to be trusted and leaned upon. I think a story from Martin Luther, the great German reformer, illustrates this well. Soon after the start of the Protestant Reformation, which I'm not going to go through a whole history lesson, Martin Luther became literally a fugitive. Literally a fugitive hiding out in a castle. So he had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, they had put a bounty on his head, and he was basically anywhere in Europe he went, he was a marked man. They could arrest him. They could send him off and possibly be executed, at least be in prison. And there was a uh, sympathetic uh, prince in Germany named Frederick the Wise who said, well, you can hide out in one of my castles. And while Martin Luther was in hiding, a fugitive from the law, he began translating the Greek New Testament into common German. Because up until that point, the New Testament would not be translated into common languages. Scripture was held close, like something that needed to be guarded and not allowed into the common people's hands. And so in his uh, fugitive state, Martin Luther, there in the castle, he began translating the New Testament into German. So that the people that he preached to in German could have the Bible themselves. And Luther later described this as one of the most trying and discouraging times of his life. That in the midst of translating the words of life, scripture, into German, that he was assailed by doubts. An incredible discouragement and depression. And there were times where he described it where he, he couldn't even go on. Like in his work. He just wanted to throw it down and just sit there and wallow in his, you know, I'm a fugitive stuck in a castle, I can't do it. And the stories later were that during this incredible time of discouragement, you could hear Martin Luther's voice resounding in those castle grounds. In the midst of his depression and discouragement, he would shout, I am baptized. I am baptized. He was shouting to his doubts. He was shouting to, he literally said he was shouting at the devil. <laughs> he would throw ink blots that he was using for his, you know, writing. He would throw it against the wall, which I don't recommend doing that. But he would shout, I am baptized. And you would hear it echo out. Not, I was baptized. He doesn't say, I was. He said, I am baptized. What was going on here? In the time of his greatest troubles, when he certainly did not feel like a beloved Son of God, right? Luther could point to what was said about him in his baptism. When he didn't feel it, he could reach by faith, even in his desperation and doubt, to the reality of what his baptism spoke to him. That it spoke a better word to him than the moment of discouragement. That it spoke a better word to him than the lies of Satan and the confusion of his own feelings. I am baptized. We're invited to the same kind of leaning upon our baptism. Now, it's not leaning upon water. It's leaning upon the promises that that baptism sets in front of us. It's leaning upon Jesus. But when I don't feel Jesus, when the good news doesn't feel like good news in that moment, when I may be wondering, did I I really put my faith in Jesus, or am I just going through the motions, or is this just historical circumstance, and I wound up, you know, accidentally, in church one time and it just became a social habit. We go, no. There are promises made to me and sealed to me in my baptism. They're mine by faith. They're mine. I am baptized. So we can lean upon the reality of our baptism in these times of great discouragement or even temptation. A better example of that isn't just Martin Luther. Jesus actually did this. If you keep reading in the Gospel of Luke, what happens directly after the baptism of Jesus? The temptation of Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he has this incredible experience. In the 40 days, he's kind of stuck in the wilderness. And he's being tempted by Satan. And if you read through, you'll notice the first thing that Satan says to him. The first words that are spoken after God has proclaimed, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, then do this. If, if you're the Son of God, then turn this stone into bread. If you're the Son of God, then jump off the pinnacle of the temple. God's angels will catch you. If you are the Son of God, if you need to prove it, you've got to prove it. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't need to prove anything. Why? He doesn't have to prove himself to himself or to Satan or anybody else that he's the Son of God because it's been pronounced upon him in his baptism. He heard those words. You are my Son, and I love. and With you, I am well pleased. Jesus has heard these words clearly, and he doesn't need to look to his deeds to demonstrate that he's the Son of God. God has said it, and it's true. And that's true for us as well. We don't have to do anything to prove to anybody including ourselves, that we are dearly delighted in and beloved sons and daughters of God. Now, fruit's going to spring from the tree. God begins a good work in us, and the fruit's going to come out, guys. It may be a little tiny fruit that's hard to see sometimes during some seasons. The fruit will come, but we don't look to the fruit. We don't put our trust in the fruit. We put our trust in the root. That's what makes the tree. The fruit proves it. But what makes the tree is the root, and once the root, the foundation that has been pronounced upon us, and us being joined to Jesus by faith, that we are dearly delighted in sons and daughters of God who are beloved with God uh, with whom God is well pleased. And any progress we make in life just springs out of that. It just springs out of that worthiness that's already ours in Christ. Soon we'll be adding another thing. You know, every week we have this Lord's table. We do Lord's Supper every week, and we have it right here. Soon I'm going to be adding something that's going to be in our midst every week, and it's a baptismal font. Just a little bowl of water. And we're going to use it for baptisms when we have those. We'll use it for those baptisms. But we're going to have it up every week. The reason why is this. It's going to stand in our midst as a reminder. A stand in our midst as a reminder. Because my words are going to fail. Sometimes the preaching is not going to be great. And that's fine. But what's always going to be true is what's pronounced upon us in our baptism. And around the rim of that bowl, I just got a, a, a guy's making it. I found it on the Etsy, actually. Um, <laughs> it has imprinted in it, with you I am well pleased. And so when we come in we see that bowl, and we walk past it on our way to the baptism. Whatever. Let me say, right there. That's the bedrock. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Some grace has been pronounced upon me that I can grasp a hold of and believe. It's going to be a testimony to us of God's work in us individually and in us together as a church. Now, if you're here and you've never been baptized, I'd love to talk to you uh, maybe over lunch or coffee or something about baptism. Baptism is not undergoing a magical ceremony. The physical waters don't save anybody. It's not what it is. There's a profound testimony to us by God, as we've said. And it really is the initiating action of following Jesus. Of being welcomed into His covenant community. A physical action that points to a deeper, wonderful spiritual reality of what God is up to in His church. Or if you're a parent of a child... We have some people watching this as well. If you're parenting a child that hasn't been baptized, I'd love to talk to you as well. Baptism is a profound statement of God's welcome. God's welcome into His covenant communities. a profound statement of His love that precedes even our ability to understand and respond to His grace. There's one preacher I I read, I didn't include it here. I probably should have because I'm going to try to quote it from memory. He said, Every baptism is an infant baptism because we all come like children with nothing in our hands. We all come with nothing in our hands, only in the posture of receiving. We are all carried to Jesus. For this reason, baptism belongs to all who come to faith and to their children. The significance of baptism as an action of welcoming someone into the covenant community is uh, it's rooted in the Old Testament idea of circumcision. Colossians 2 makes that connection, that we don't have to go undergo physical circumcision because we've already been circumcised, not by hands, but by being joined to Jesus in his baptism. And as an aside as well, circumcision spoke a word of being set apart as a community, but it was a word limited to men and boys. Baptism spreads out. It's a more appropriate symbol. The washing of Jesus. Not just men and boys, and them you know, standing instead for the for the For uh, for women and girls, it's a welcoming uh, action for all. With that said, I want to leave you not with my words this morning, but these words from Titus chapter 3 for us to reflect upon before we come to the table. When the kindness and love of our God, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. And the renewal by the Holy Spirit can be poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the promises that are ours in Christ. That we grasp by faith. And the promises that are set forth before us in our baptism. That incorporated into You. Not just through a physical action, but by You reaching to us by Your grace. That we can have a foundation of identity that's rooted in Christ. That we can have a sense of worthiness that will carry us through life. That we can have a motivation and a way of thriving that will not run out because it's founded in you, the eternal God. So God, I pray that you would apply that to our hearts. That you would teach us how to lean upon our baptism, meaning lean upon you day in, day out. That we might live in the existence of being your children.